Hey friends, are you sick and tired of big banks? Tell me about it. Every single time I go into the bank for any type of experience, I feel like I am just a number and that it's a privilege for me to do banking with them. When was the last time you didn't feel like that, that they wanted to treat you as a valued customer? Have you asked yourself the question, why does it feel more like going into a woke environment when I go into my bank branches than sometimes on a university campus? Like, why am I being so taught ideology every time I go to the bank? How can they really offer you the best investment advice when they are driven by the latest progressive idea? So if you're fed up and you want some real investment advice, minus all the co corporate socialism and woke capitalism, give our friends at Rocklink a call. That's 905-631-5462 or send them an email at info at rocklink.com. That's info at rocklink with a C. Com. So I am pro medical consent. Mm -hmm. I am pro um, informed consent. I am anti medical coercion. But when it comes to the conception of a child within the womb of a woman, I firmly believe that now we're not dealing with one individual, we're dealing with two individuals. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the right of that child is to life. Hey everybody, Michael Thiessen here. And over the summer, you have been seeing me interview some familiar faces. So you will have seen me just put out a video with Maxime Bernier and he hadn't been on the podcast for quite a while. And we're again releasing another podcast with Dr. Julie Panessi and Julie's been on recently, but we got into a conversation and we couldn't finish it. So we wanted to have Julie back. So Julie, we're all happy to have you here discussing with me today. Thanks for coming on again. I'm thrilled to be here. I I mean, I, I just sort of leap at the chance to talk with anyone who is willing to explore things without fear and barriers. And that's very rare today, which is the sad state of our world, but it's so important. So um, you're doing great work over there with the Democracy Fund. And you told us a little bit about that on the last podcast. Feel free to give everyone an update at some point, whenever it works into the conversation. Um, but I just want to remind our listeners why we're talking today. And that's because um, you and I, over the last two years, were vocal opponents of medical coercion, specifically uh, in the world of um, the, the vaccine mandates, the mask mandates, um, all, in all of the ways that people would sit back and go, well, wait a minute, I, I've done my research. I am not comfortable with that medical procedure being forced to put on a mask or the medical procedure of actually having something injected into my body. I'm not comfortable with that. And then I found myself on stage as a Christian pastor and freedom fighter with other people who'd be like, yeah, my body, my choice. And I, you know, every time I'm like, well, wait a minute, uh, can we say that out loud? And I, I felt very uncomfortable with that. Then you wrote a book called my choice. And that and, brought us to this discussion thought, about how can we in one moment 
talk about the need for individuals to be able to have choice over their bodies, Mm -hmm. but why I personally would cringe at that, that slogan Mm -hmm. because it has been such an emblem. It has been such a, such a, uh, banner for the pro-choice movement of which I am not. So I am pro medical consent. Mm -hmm. I am pro, um, informed consent. I am anti-medical coercion, but when it comes to the conception of a child within the womb of a woman, I firmly believe that now we're not dealing with one individual, we're dealing with two individuals. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the right of that child is to life. And Mm -hmm. that child needs to be able to be born. And um, if we go with the normative um uh, normative and creational side of things, a man and a woman would come together and conceive and normally without barrier or illness or complexities, a a human baby would be born. Mm -hmm. So we could talk about extremes at some point, but maybe Mm -hmm. that's kind of where I want to begin. So that's my perspective. What's your perspective, um, on this issue? Okay, so so let's get into this because I find that in most sectors of society, whether it's academia, which is typically anti-religious and very neoliberal, or even within Christian uh, circles these days, which it also actually has its own, I think, kind of stream of anti-religiosity and neoliberal postmodern kind of trend to it. it. It This is a topic that isn't really comfortable anywhere, right? So I think it's, so first of all, I think it's really important to talk about it. Um, I've got a lot packed into my head. So give me a little uh, like grace <laughs> to get it all out. Um, first of all, let me say, just so your viewers are, you know, if they're trying to decide we're into the fourth minute, do I want to listen to this woman or not? <laughs> I'll tell them what I think. So I agree with you in all of the broad strokes that you just laid out. It probably doesn't mean we agree about everything. There's probably some little things here or there we don't agree about. Um, But I do think it's important to address this question of whether or not, and I think we should use the word hypocritical, whether there's an irony or a contradiction even in maintaining that the reason why vaccine mandates are wrong is because I have a right to decide what happens to my body, but also that that doesn't extend to the pro-choice articulation of the the, the right to abortion, right? So to be very clear, I think it's not inconsistent to say that we have a right to refuse vaccination and also not a right to abort a fetus. I don't think there's a contradiction there. So that's kind of one thing, right? But two, that doesn't make the argument, that just gives the conclusion, right? And we have to get there. Um, I think another thing that's kind of important to be clear about is that I, I personally believe that abortion is morally wrong. You do. I think there are a lot of religious arguments you can give in defense of that conclusion. I think there are a lot of um, even 
and even non-religious secular arguments that you can give in defense of that position. But the reason why we're talking about abortion today mainly is because we saw this, you know, we saw this big reversal, the Dobbs-Jackson case that overturned um, uh, Planned Parenthood and uh, Dobbs-Jackson, or that overturned Roe Wade. Um, That's not what's at issue in those cases, right? Those cases are about a constitutional right to abortion. So those are, that's really a political issue. And so I think it's always important to be clear about, well, which one are we talking about? Are we talking about whether or not there's a moral justification to have an abortion to refuse vaccination or whether or not there should be laws that protect one or both, right? So I think that's also really important to, we can talk about that. I also think that, you know, the abortion issue, I think one of the reasons why we're so afraid to talk about it is that it's so complex because it's what we might call like nested or nestled within a larger set of issues about personal identity and the value of different kinds of persons across society. And and by that, I don't just mean born persons versus fetuses, but people with different mental competencies, um, mature adults, children, physically, mentally handicapped people. Uh, And even among the set of people we, we would consider to be normal, people have different Um, skills to offer and different values to society? And how are we as a democratic nation going to start thinking about how to quantify the value that a person has to offer to a free society, right? Then, of course, there are issues about the relationship between government and healthcare, state involvement in a person's private medical choices. And then this issue of abortion has been so intimately connected to the sexual revolution, but really erroneously, I think, right? So I think we have been told, I was certainly, you know, as a philosophy grad student taught by, I mean, pretty much every um, female philosopher professor that I had was liberal and pro-choice, probably a self-selecting group, but you know, that's kind of how it was. And what they all taught is that if you want to be free, then you free yourself from the consequences of your actions, right? And so abortion is about trying to separate yourself from being saddled with this kind of power imbalance between men and women, right? That's always how it was framed anyway by feminists to to me, to a woman who was an academic or an academic in training. The reality though, right, is that we don't become free by distancing ourselves from the consequences of our actions. We become free the more we act as a free person who is capable of free choice, who understands the possible consequences of his or her actions, um, plans for those and takes responsibility for those. So we had this tendency, I think, to always think of the abortion issue as the result of rape or something equally undesirable right? And that's an outlying case. It's a rare case. The number of abortions that are the result of rape is, you know, I I forget the statistics, but it is in the majority of, of cases. In the majority of cases, women are seeking an abortion in order to terminate the fetus that is a result of consensual sex, right? And consensual sex is a choice. 
and a choice that has outcomes that for the most part we can foresee. And I think the language um, of the pro-choice movement suggests that a fetus uh, sort of is generated ex nihilo, comes out of nothing, just happens to you as though you're a victim in the process. As though, and, and if that's the case, if we're a victim, then clearly we have a right to defend ourselves and to do something about it. But it, it negates, the, the pro-choice language negates or ignores the role that our decisions have played in getting us to that point, right? So there's much more to say there, I think, but should I stop there so we can get our conversation caught up? Or if you think there's nothing of interest there, Julie, we don't have to talk about anything. Yeah, you know, we're just going to cut all of that. We'll stop at the four-minute mark. We'll pick up back at the 10-minute mark, and we'll start all over again. No, that's not true. Okay, I've been taking notes, and so so <laughs> let's, uh, let's, let's take a step back uh, with some of the things that you just brought forward. And, and look at that. All of our listeners appreciate whenever you articulate yourself. I do. I, I just love listening to you. It's really helpful. Okay, let's go back to non-scientific or sorry, non-religious arguments mm-hmm. towards um, the idea that abortion slash termination is abortive and terminating of human life. And so, I just want to go into just four basic ways that we determine um not that we determine that we assume we're dealing with a human being and these four things do not negate our humanity because we talked about we talked about you know a non-religious argument so i want to go here so number one our size never um when we're talking about born human beings our size never uh, limits my humanity. So uh, I'm very mm-hmm. happy about this because I am a, a human male of five, six on a good day. <laughs> and I'm thankful that me being five, six does not make me less human than a guy who is six, five or vice versa. Um, size does not negate our humanity. Level of development. When mm-hmm. we, when we look at human beings, we are at many different stages of development. We are some of our early stages, some of our later stages. Some of our later stages are, 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 are you, you know, we're, our body's falling apart. Our, our, our development is not going in the right direction. But at the early stages, um, we are developing, we're growing. And so again, when we talk about uh, a human being, we would never say that a teenager is less human than a uh, than a 30 year old. Um, or we wouldn't say that someone with a learning delay is less human than someone who is a, a, a genius um, who probably has a whole bunch of other social problems because of, well, can, because I, of her can I jump in for a minute? Because I fear that my feeble mind might forget by the time, by the time we get to it. Okay. I got two more. So you go and then I'll, but I'll, yeah. I got two more to go. I think you're right. I do. But I do think that there's something interesting going on in our culture that doesn't track that um, belief about the equality among humans that, that you're articulating. And so as an anecdote, I recently saw uh, on social media a mother of um, a child with Down syndrome who passed away from cancer at about 
age five. And the mother also had another child who was about a year younger. And a number of the comments on her social media post said something to the effect of, well, don't you feel relieved? Thank goodness now you can focus on your real child. And you don't have to be distracted or weighed down and take away from her life because it's the one that's more valuable. Another sort of anecdote is I think with the more um, technologically advanced we become in the direction of artificial intelligence, the easier it is to see the human mind as an inferior by comparison. And therefore also humans that are, say, you know, less intelligent or less skilled in, in some official sense, have a lower IQ, are going to fare worse by that comparison. So I do think there are a couple of things going on in our culture that suggest we may not be as equalizing of, of people, as you say. And, and also, I mean, I think just incidentally, the way that the elderly have been treated in in nursing homes and long-term care, I think probably part of that is a sign that you're past your usefulness. You're a burden on society. I thought we had moved away from this. That was certainly, you know, that has certainly been part of cultures in the past and that we we learned what was wrong with that. Um, but I think we may be regressing in, in this respect, right? No, I actually agree with you that we are regressing. However, we're regressing um in spite of the mm. facts in in spite of um mm. the in spite so so for example number 1 we know that the eugenics movement that was very popular in the 20s and 30s mm -hmm. that eugenics movement really did have no 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 your level of development does mm -hmm. affect whether you are human or not human but then we saw the outworking of that where it was like, oh, you're just someone I don't understand. So I'm mm -hmm. going to create a whole propaganda uh, machine against you, or you're just a person that looks different than me so I can make you the scapegoat. So I'm going to create a whole propaganda machine. But what I'm talking about here is a biological argument in, in the sense that the level of development, I'm, you don't even have to go to, again, the extreme. When I'm talking about level of development, I'm just simply saying you would never say to a three-year-old child that because they're not a teenager, they're not human. Mm -hmm. we, we don't make those equations. Now, you're right. We're getting back into this eugenics, pragmatism. Um, pragmatism has just seeped all throughout the church in so many different ways. That's why there's a lack of ethics there too. Um, you're getting in this utilitarian type of mindset. I agree, but that is a regression despite our common normal behavior that would never look at someone's just a different in the stage of life and say, okay, you are literally not human because of your stage of life. Mm -hmm. um, you might – they're getting into the are you useful or are you not useful, but we can come up with many examples where two people in two different stages of development would, would never be equated where one is human and one is non-human. Mm -hmm. And this is of course what they do with the, with the, with the child developing in the, in, in the woman's womb, right? They say, well, mm -hmm. it's so tiny. We don't know what it is. And they okay, well, what, okay. Mm -hmm. If, if that, if that thing were to grow up and you were to name it Todd, what would you have killed? Right? Like there, nobody can say that just because of the size of the fetus that they, didn't kill a human being that going the normative creational way that things would go would be born a human being. 
nor can, nor would they be able to say that um, in the real world outside of this one argument about like a toddler. You just wouldn't say that my my 12-year-old is not as human as my 18-year-old because of the level of development. Okay, last two, and then feel free to comment in. But environment, okay? Like just because I'm in inside a house versus being outside of a house, that does not scientifically change my biology and my humanity or uh, in uh, adding a religious argument to that, like my, my value before God, it doesn't inside or outside. So inside a fleshy womb versus being outside of a fleshy womb doesn't change my, like my environment doesn't change my humanity. Mm-hmm. And then finally dependency, you know, um, if we've got, you know, if, if, if a patient needs to have oxygen to go through a procedure, the for the time that that patient is on the oxygen, no medical doctor has a biological ability to look at that person and go, oh, they're no longer human now because they're dependent upon my mach- on our machinery. In fact, it is usually in those moments that doctors are trying to save a life, right? So I, I, you you start you went back and you you made mention of non-religious arguments and I just wanted to go to that there are real biological arguments that um I want to say they're undisputable in the sense that they are of course disputable because they are being disputed but they're so obvious that if you were to bring out a toddler in front of anybody and just say, okay, what you just said of a, of a, of a, of an unborn, apply that to the toddler. They would not be able to consistently do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, this is such an interesting issue. And I think whenever there's a, such a debate and there's someone on the other side of the debate, you're trying to understand, well, why did they believe this? Right. And if you don't have access to them, if they're not here right in front of you, and you're trying to imagine why they believe this, what we've talked about so far for the, the last 25 minutes is all interesting and probably at the, you know, what's going on subconsciously in the minds of people who have the pro-choice and the, and the, and the pro-life view. But I doubt that any of it is what most people are thinking of on a daily basis when they vehemently hold one of these views, right? One thing that surprises me a lot is how pervasive, um, enthusiastic abortion rights is. I'll say enthusiastic because, you know, it seems to me that even if, even if arguably you maintain that a woman should have the right to abortion, you think you would think that you would do so reverently with some kind of regret, right? You'd think the view would be, well, I've, I've considered everything. I've weighed the evidence. I think on balance, it's more important for a woman to have right, a right to access abortion than it is to preserve the life of the fetus. But I feel the moral weight of that because there is a cost, there is a loss. But that isn't what is being indicated by the language. I, I, I don't use enthusiasm lightly. Um, and it's a bit surprising to me that in many of the very pro-choice communities, like um, the grand millennial, are you familiar with that term, grand millennials? No. Okay. Well, this is one thing I might know about, about, you know, contemporary society and social media. So grand millennials, I'm sure there's some sort of technical definition, but they are millennials who are very, um, 
you might say Victorian or vintage. And part of that is they're also very pronatalist. So they, you know, they like to have beautiful homes and a big family and lots of children and they wear dresses and, but they're all, you know, 30, 35, right? So it's interesting to me that in that community where they, you know, there are pictures of their beautiful family and babies wearing bonnets all over Instagram, but then interspersed with that is this very pro, uh, pro-choice, glorious Steinem, my body, my choice, holding up banners kind of imagery and language. And so there's this odd way, I think, that society now generally treats the termination of a fetus or whatever you want to call it. Because even if you're not motivated by the religious reasons, even if you're not motivated by the non, you know, the secular reasons for valuing personhood in its early stages, you'd think that part of what it is to be a human being, part of what it is to show your humanity is to express your awareness of how important it is to give attention to other forms of life, whatever they are, you know, whether we're talking about animals or plants or, I mean, my goodness, these are the same people who go on a rampage about protecting the environment. Well, the environment, I mean, you care more about coral than you do about, about the early stages of personhood. And that is just an odd disconnect to me. I think the reason why we make it is because it's personal, because giving attention to the value of personhood in its early stages might cost me something. It might mean that I can't make so-called choices with as much wanton abandon as I might want to, right? So I, so this is where, this is where the conversation has to segue to religious and ideological foundations, because, uh, you know, if I've heard you correctly, what you're saying is, is like, and it's true, you know, I don't even hear the pro-abortion movement making the old cases that the fetus is a child, is not a child. In fact, mm. I, you know, you, you look over Twitter, you look just, you, you just catch them in their own language and they're actually just, as you described, this passionate um, celebration of they'd go all the way to admit murder. Like th- there's just no problem. I, mm. I want to write my life. I mean, I want to write to my choice and to not bear consequences of my behavior so much that it doesn't matter to be consistent with that. I'd even end a li- the life of an unborn. And, there, and there's, there's little remorse there. Which has to lead us then to a conversation of, of where we ended off last time about right and wrong and and what would motivate people. Now you, you hinted at it and I'll let you I'll let you I'll let your hint start the conversation and then I'm just gonna put the nail in and if you feel like you wanna pull the nail out just a little bit, that's fine. But you hinted at it when you said, you know, in it in order to live in a free society, part of that is living with the consequences of our behaviors and taking responsibility for our actions. Now, I know why I wouldn't want to take responsibility for my actions. And this is where you come into, um, why you wouldn't want to. Well, well, yeah, where I wouldn't want to, this is where you would come into concepts like of selfishness Mm -hmm. of, um, self worship, self idolatry, um, this is where you would be in re- in rebellion to to God. P- people would would do this just 
in rebellion to um to the opposite which is belief in a authority and a creator the the god of the universe has created these things these ways for these purposes and they are good and people would want to choose to deny that um th- this you know you're talking about this you know the moving towards the uh, this um more pragmatism or a utilitarian ethic well we all know that that is hand hand and glove with um secularism because if there is no moral authority outside of humanity to relegate humanity then it is my will it is it is my personal will or the amount of my will that i can uh impose upon others the, the level of power that i have which so it all you know it always goes hand and 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 glove hand and fist with this idea that humans make up their own rules so therefore the the strongest human makes up the, their own rules mm-hmm. so i think it's, it, i jump in right after this julie i i know i'm rambling on here but i'll just get to the end of it obviously um i really believe that this is our culture seeing the chickens come home to roost of the denial of god and if if i if there is no god to show me what liberty and virtue and authority is then i am left with only the human imagination the self which is why the self is so highly promoted in culture and to the point where if i have to murder my own child to have my own autonomy complete and utter autonomy mm-hmm. and again they're not saying my body my choice f- for the for the child mm-hmm. um what i'm left with is just all of this relativism and so i would be making religious arguments because i that that's the only foundation by what standard would would you be going back to julie and 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 how would you interact with what i've just said there it's it's really hard to it, it's hard to imagine that because i mean my reasoning is the same as yours i i think that human life is is this incredible gift and it's it's not made by us you know i mean when women say that we we grow you know and i'm a mother and and to say I remember being pregnant and people saying, what an amazing thing you're growing a human being. I'm like, well, yeah, I'm eating well and I'm care, you know, but really it's made by God. It's not made, you know, so I think we, to think that we are, <laughs> and, and I think as someone who's, a, you know, focuses on autonomy a lot, I often do use the language of being the authors of our own lives. And that's true within the framework of, of free will, right? So we we are given ch- the, the, the capacity to make free choices, but that doesn't mean that some aren't better than other ones, right? And I think, um, so I think what you're kind of trying to to get me to do is to imagine, well, what if I didn't have that reasoning? What would the reasons be then? And, you know, as you say, if you don't have, if you don't have belief in God or some other kind of religious authority, then is it the case that the default is just to try to, is is sort of Nietzschean, right? To sort of try to enlarge your, um, your sphere of power over the world, your, your own identity. Maybe, maybe 
But then that doesn't seem consistent with how much of the COVID narrative is, is driven and framed, right? That we're all in this together and we have an obligation to other people. So it seems like even within the non-religious context, a lot of people, I'm going to say, claim to be motivated by concern for something other than themselves. And then we were talking about the environment earlier. It seems like, I mean, many people, we might even be able to say that most people who are environmentalists are not religious. And yet they, you know, they think that, well, I'm going to buy my electric car and I'm going to put solar panels on my house because that makes me a good person. What does it mean to be a good person? Well, not to focus exclusively on what matters to me, but to care for something other than myself. So I'm going to care about the, you know, the earth. So it seems like in those cases, it's almost like there's a double standard, right? In those cases, it seems like what it is to be um, acceptable, what it is to be woke, right? In those respects is to be other regarding, to care about something outside of yourself. But that the default stance in the abortion case for non-religious people is to be self-regarding and not other regarding. That is intention and inconsistency I don't understand. Maybe it's just too much, too much of a sacrifice. Maybe it's like I can put, you know, I can buy an electric car for a few thousand dollars more than, an, than another kind of car, no biggie. But really, you want me to be saddled with the consequences of of sex for the rest of my life and all of the psychological and financial and et cetera burdens that that involves, maybe it's just too much of a, of a sacrifice. You know, I, number one, I appreciate that you've pointed that inconsistency out and, and it is an inconsistency because that's exactly been the frustration during the last two years. You've seen the inconsistency. You've just seen the utter flip-flop all the time. Mm-hmm. But what you just said about maybe it's too much sacrifice, that reminds me of uh, of scripture where Jesus accused the Pharisees of saying, well, look, like you pay attention to the lighter parts of the law. You know, you offer your little, mm. your, your cumin and you, you offer your spices. Right. Um, but you, but you ignore the weightier parts of the law. Mm-hmm. And actually that goes back to my point about being selfish. I actually believe that we all, so I, I've been, I'm sure you've come across this, right? All of your students will likely have some set of rules. And it's not that we live in a society where one group of people really likes rules and one group of people really likes no rules. Mm. No, it's that we all have different rules that we like. Usually the rules I like are the easiest for me to follow. Mm-hmm. Except if someone has given me an outside rule. So if I'm in your classroom as a student, if I'm given no rules, then I'm going to be like, hey, I'm going to talk a lot. And if you give me the capacity to, you know, extend my imagination and my sphere of influence, it would be like, hey, I'm going to talk more than the teacher. And hey, let's make it a rule. And and I'm going to, Right. Because that's the easiest for me to abide by. Now, you, you mentioned this in, in previous podcasts. Now, the students are so fearful that they mm. might actually feel more comfortable if someone created a rule like, hey, the teacher can't force us to answer a single question. Because that serves my interests as they currently That exist. serves my interests. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, one of the things that we know about people is that for selfish reasons and for, for the sake of our own name and appearance – we will still create rules 
It is just that our rules are usually easy for us to serve. So when someone, sure, I can go buy an electric car. Great. Um, I didn't do any research. I don't know where the battery comes from. I have no idea about the real impact on the environment. But if everybody's doing it and nobody's going to bug me about it, great, I can do it. Mm-hmm. That's me following a rule that's easy for me to follow. And it's exactly what you've just said, where real rules, rules from from God that actually affect and protect life, they're actually quite hard to fulfill. And mm-hmm. therefore, we often resist following them. I think that's right. I mean, we I, I've thought a lot about and talked a lot about our purity culture, but I think we also have a, a bit of a luxury culture right and a security culture we want maybe we have this belief that we've we've been through enough we've worked all out all of the societal and technical kinks that are involved with with being human and being part of the human race and now we deserve to luxuriate in the payoff of all of that or something right so we want to feel perfectly safe we want to we want pathways to success to be as easy as possible. I mean, you look, I just wrote a, a, an essay on, you know, the crisis in higher education and how students really see themselves as customers who are buying, you know, they're, they're paying for their degree over time and they go and collect it on, on, on graduation day. They're not educating themselves in any way. You know, we're, I think it's all about our culture is about the path of least resistance. We want to purify ourselves. We want no possibility of being tainted physically or emotionally or, you know, psychologically. And so, I mean, what you're talking about is, is like moral tension, moral burdens, moral uh, accountability. And those are all incredibly uncomfortable things. I think one of the things that's at the heart of virtue signaling, you know, we talk about the the buying the electric car because it kind of gets you off the hook, morally speaking, from from the perspective of other people. Someone sees that you're driving a Tesla or whatever, and they think, oh, well, she's a certain kind of person and I have to put her in a certain moral category now. And as long as you own that Tesla, you're not going to slip out of that moral category. You know, you're appropriately virtue signaled. And and that comes with a lot of other things. Like it comes with friend and social groups and it comes with probably job. And and, and even I, I just read a paper a while ago about how, um, you know, salaries are correlated with with how you virtue signal in the domain of morality in the right kinds of ways. So we're probably getting off track here. But uh, I do think that a lot of these issues are at the heart of why we treat something like abortion so lightly and why we are so um, why we can't even engage with the religious or philosophical arguments about personhood and the status of this thing that is a fetus that's going to become a person one day. Can't even deal with it. We have a kind of psychological squeamishness about it because it hits too close to home, home being all the things that we care so deeply about now, which is, you know, be, being part of a group, being thought of in a certain way, being pure, being socially cleansed, um, being free, not having consequences, all, all these things we've been talking about. It, it's interesting when, when you say, like, I think we're getting off topic. I, I, I was feeling the exact opposite in the moment <laughs> in the sense that this is why it's so hard because you, you see, you mentioned earlier on, right? There's so many different motives and each one of those motives must be evaluated and brought back into some check and balance. You know, mm-hmm. earlier on, you mentioned like 
um, you know, someone's ability to contribute to society and how people are weighing that in. So we have lots of friends who have children who are Down syndrome, who, whose their, their, their doctor's medical advice was to terminate the child. Mm-hmm. And uh, individuals with all of the tension and emotional uh, difficulty that that brings, um, I, I know more parents who would say things like, I've learned more from my Down syndrome child than I have from anyone else in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, it, particularly, I can think of four Down syndrome individuals that have come in and out of our lives as a family. And they are often uh, the most affectionate, delightful, innocent types of, and yet in our country today, around North America today, um, they would, they would be, they would be advised to be, to be killed based upon their genetics. And so what we're getting at right now is all of these motives that make it hard to talk about the facts. Now, again, we could, I think we could go through the facts. We could go through the biological facts. We could go through the religious facts. And then we could go through the philosophical facts and they would all line up with, right? When, oh. when we say biological, we're talking about creational norms that unless you're unless someone is like a professional wordsmith, you can catch them easily. Like, for, for example, when, when Justin Trudeau says, you know, monkeypox is, you know, primarily transmitted by men who are having sex oh. with men, like, I would have died to be a journalist in that room. Just put up the hand and said, well, wait a minute. What is, what is a man? Uh, I, I thought, I didn't think that you could define that anymore. Right. So unless you're talking about a professional wordsmith, you have, you have this biological creational norms that are undeniable other than from the individuals who's really trying hard to make a case for another motive which leads to the to the religious like god is the author of life and outside of that authorship we are left left with moral relativism and i i'd be happy for you to engage with any of the sources that you feel would come from the secular position and and be you know of somewhat balanced but my guess would be that they still had to rob somewhere from a Christian worldview in order to get this idea of value before a creator and responsibility before a creator. So then we're into this whole world now where we're just talking about, well, why would people deny the obvious and, and make it so hard that we can't talk about it? And I think we're hitting the nail on the head, Julie, in the sense of there are incredible amount of personal motives. And we could probably walk through each one. Now, I'd actually like to do that Julia, if you wouldn't mind, because one of the accusations made to men in this conversation is, well, you can't talk about this because you're Mm -hmm. not a woman to which I laugh at and say, yeah, whatever. Like that's not an argument. That's just a mean assertion. But Mm -hmm. with that being said, I am talking to a woman. So what was motherhood like? What, what is it like? What complexities has it given for your career? Um, Let's talk a little bit about like I, I feel like we haven't given motherhood a fair shake even as far as just the wonder and beauty and amazing thing that motherhood is. Like I we've kind of been talking on their terms the whole time. Mm-hmm. But I'd like you to talk about it and just 
if you can be open and honest about the tensions that it brings as a professional woman. Well, I mean, so this is a whole other sort of can of worms, isn't it? Because our society, I think the way that we speak about motherhood and the way we speak about work and about motherhood not being work, you know, a very sort of simple anecdote when someone asks you, oh, what do you do? I just stay home with my, I just stay home. I'm just a mother. Nobody ever said. Which by the way, my, my wife and I have a uh, an answer for that now, Sarah, who is a fantastic stay-at-home mom, she is like, uh, I am mother and estate keeper. So, <laughs> yes, well, yeah. yes, like right, because like your children. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that it's um, my husband, who's who's a lawyer and goes out of the house to to work every day. Like he would never say if someone asked him, I, "I'm just a lawyer." You know, like it's just that that's just not how our society works. We somehow and I I mean, we probably can't get in that into that today. But for some reason, we value work out of the house. And I think even over the last couple of years, it's been hard for us to come to terms with the fact that you can do the same work at home. Maybe for many for many careers, and that's caused a kind of vocational crisis for people, I think, because the home has kind of been denigrated. It's 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 got this sense of like dirtiness or disorganization, or it's not where the wheels of society really churn. You know, it's so there's a lot of, of complexity. I mean, when it comes to the issue of motherhood. I'm probably going to be sort of playing into the pro-choice argument here a bit, but I mean, it's life altering. There is nothing. I mean, every moment of your day is changed fundamentally when you become a mother. And that's true in certain physically connected ways for the first year or so of life. You know, I mean, when you, when you're pregnant and when you're, um, you know, when you're breastfeeding and when you are, you're just, it's hard to explain, but I mean, fathers, like fathers see this. It's not like women have a monopoly on knowing that having a child is, is, is involves a lot of physical closeness. I mean, fathers see this, you know, your babies spit up on you. You, I mean, I think the other day um, I was urinated on by both the dog and my daughter, you know, I mean, this is, (laughs) these things happen, you know, and (laughs) it's funny because I watch uh, friends and acquaintances who are very kind of organized puritanical people go through this as well. And just, they just can't handle it because mother, it's a very messy business, (laughs) physically speaking. It's also a very emotionally messy business. I mean, I have a a two-year-old now and there's no rationality. There's no explaining things, you know, there's, it's just raw emotion and reaction and, um, uh, inconvenience, inconveniences, you know, they, they, they want things at a time when it's not a good time. They don't understand that, you know, you know, you're driving, it's not ideal to stop and take the kitty off the side of the road. You know I mean? It's, it's incredibly chaos inducing physical, physical, it's exhausting in all the ways that a human being can experience exhaustion. <laughs> See, like this is pro-choice person is going to be saying, see, <laughs> this is why you don't want to do this. Well, okay. It's so let's, can we go there for one second? Can we, can we go there for one second? Yeah. They might be going there, but they still have to go there and say, see, it would be better for me to terminate a child. Like that, that's the irony. They still, even in all the things that you've talked about, 
you've you've talked about the common experience of parenting a human being, mm-hmm. right? And by the way, you're absolutely right. Um, men see it and experience it, but we really see the beauty of motherhood because of all of the ways that you know. It, there's actually a scripture in Isaiah that talks about how deeply connected the in, the happiness of the whole household is to the body of the mother to and it has a, a quib about uh husband and wife relationship and a quib about uh child parent relationship mm-hmm. and it's an incredibly physical quote um mm. it's like you see that that the 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 female brings physically to the home such a wonderful and wondrous uh, gift mm-hmm. in in a way that is unique to to women. Um, yeah, and I think, but that- like you said, it's an incredible other centered, hard work, chaotic world that you're working through. Yeah, and and on this point of whether or not men have a say, and I guess the argument is, well, men don't have a say because they don't go through it, therefore they can't understand it, and, and you can't, and it's not right for you to have control over a decision, the experience of which you don't understand. Maybe that's something like the argument. But, you know, we can, um, I mean, I think it's true that a man can't understand the phenomenology of being pregnant. No woman, no woman can until you are. There's something uniquely phenomenologically uh, about that, right? That you just can't understand it. But morality, I mean, what it, like part of what it is to become a mature moral person is to develop the skill of attentiveness and empathy, right? And so, and, and moral imagination is part of that. So I think an attentive father of a pregnant woman can still undergo the experience of trying to imagine watching, listening, um, feeling both physically and emotionally, and also, um, trying to imagine what it's like to experience that. And that goes an awful long way in the building of moral relationships, both between parents and within citizens in society. So even among people who have never had children, who don't want to have children, so not, we're taking it out of the gender disparity, right? But even like for women who, who don't want to have children, they can still exercise a kind of moral attention to people who are going through that experience and empathy for um, women who have lost children, empathy for women who have had difficult labors and have to recover, empathy for women who have difficult you know, periods of child rearing, all of these things. So I think to say that, well, you're a man, you don't know anything, is to deny the possibility of a man becoming a mature moral agent in this respect. I, it, it, ironically, like th- this is like farmer wisdom in the sense that, you know, like – you ever been, you ever, I've, I've been out in fields with farmers lots of times and, and they're, they're showing you, you know, how to f- fix a tractor or, or they're talking to you about how they just, you know, how they seed and then how they harvest. And, you know, they'll very often have these like gems of wisdom. Like you don't realize how selfish of an individual you are until you have children. Mm-hmm. Like, like the reality of it, like this is this is partly the beauty of the creation of the home right you 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 first 
make a commitment to a spouse for life. And that is one part of laying down your life and a part of God's normal way of calling you to this, uh, this self-sacrificing love. And then you have children. And like you said, like so much is thrown at you. Like I was sitting around the other day, we were just looking at my, my, my first son is about to go to university. And so we're sitting around looking at his, his, his first year courses and I just can't help. And he looks over, he's like, dad, why are you laughing? And I just said, oh, the amount of time I would have in my life if I didn't have four children and I had that course schedule, like <laughs> how did I ever even feel busy? Like how, how is it that I ever felt a weight, like an ounce of pressure mm-hmm. to show up on Mondays at 11 AM for an hour and a half lecture. And then to have the rest of the day where I could go to the library and study. And then on oh, Tuesdays and Thursdays are super hard day. It's like I eight o'clock to 11. Those days and basketball practice exactly. or something. Exactly. So, so it's like, now he can't, he can't picture it. Like he can't get my humor. I'm, I'm sincerely not trying to be derogatory to my son. He's done great. He's got academic scholarships. I'm proud of him, but I just couldn't help but go, dude, you have no idea the amount of work I do now with four children comparatively. Like I'm the it guy. I'm the right now. I'm the breadwinner. I'm the, uh, the disciplinary I'm we're, we homeschool. So I'm the principal, like, like yeah, all the of these things to make sure they don't get injured too much too often. Like there, there's a lot of, but you make a really good point. Like I think about this a lot. I was um, pregnant when I taught my last class at university and students would come, you know, so I was teaching at a full-time schedule and fairly pregnant and students would come to me and say, Oh, I couldn't get this done. You wouldn't believe what's going on in my life. And I'm thinking you would, (laughs) you know, but if we all approached university or college education with the skills that you have, once you become a parent, I mean, we would all be gold medalists. Like, you know, you don't realize how much time you have, but, but that's, um, I think that kind of brings us to the point that parenthood is a, you know, it's a curse in the sense that it's very weighty. And I can see why people would not want to be saddled with the consequences of that if they don't want to be saddled with the consequences of that. But the logical implication of that is not necessarily that we get to kill the source of those consequences, right? Uh, It might very well mean that the decision that led to those consequences was a poor one, right? Um, it's not like we live in a world where, I mean, <laughs> I, I guess one of the outcomes of the sexual revolution is that people of childbearing age know what sex is about. They know what the outcome is. And they're, you know, there's information on the internet. It's not like you can sort of plead ignorant, ignorance now and say, well, I didn't know what would happen. I didn't know what it's like to have a child, you know. Um, so I think the fact that, that parenthood is weighty is, is the truth. But it's the truthful consequence or implication of a series of choices that lead up to that lead up to parenthood. And we haven't put much focus in our society on, um, you know, helping young people to understand what those consequences look like and that there's a time in life 
that is right for them and a time in life that isn't right for them. And sexual freedom isn't about just getting to have sex with whoever you want and then dealing with the consequences later in the most self-serving way. Again, to bring us back to what I was saying earlier, like true sexual freedom is not being free of the burdens of one's life choices. It's embracing the consequences of and taking accountability for them and saying, I'm aware of them. A mature person doesn't abandon their choices, just like a mature person doesn't abandon their relationships or their promises or their contracts, right? A mature person says, I'm sticking around, I'm dealing with this, I'm taking ownership of this, and this is how I'm managing it. There's a, um, a moral philosopher named Claudia Card, and she uh, talks about the difference between taking credit responsibility for something and managerial responsibility for something. And managerial responsibility is just what it sounds like. It's taking responsibility for managing the consequences of a certain event. And I think we in society tend to downplay, well, I think we downplay responsibility in all of its respects, but we downplay the importance of managing our responsibilities as the outcome of the decisions that that we make, right? And now when it comes to the abortion issue, abortion, I think really is seen as a kind of birth control. I don't know why that would be a, you know, I don't know why you would want to go there because if you're truly a self-serving person, there are surely better ways to accomplish that, that are less invasive, that are less costly, that are less, you know, now in certain states, less sort of legally difficult. Um, but we do have that framework that, well, if I didn't succeed at, you know, taking the pill in the right way, I can always just terminate the pregnancy later. It's equivalent. It's just the same thing. Right. And the, and the bar is so low in the sense that, you know, we, we talked about, you know, the, 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 the one side of the coin is the responsibility and the weightiness of parenthood. The mm -hmm. other side is the great gift and beauty that it is. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, when we talk about, you know, the way that our culture coaches young adults, it, they, they coach them with such a low standard, such a low bar mm -hmm. to shoot for. When in reality, it is like, no, become a virtuous young man. Take your foot off the sex pedal. Wait and show the fact, show a young woman that you are serious about her as a human being, as an individual, as a friend, um, show her that you would be willing to be a committed lifelong partner, take that stand and, and, and make her feel beautifully significant and secure, um, to the young woman, like, no, have more vision than just, um, pleasing him right now in this moment or, or getting what you want out of the relationship right now in this moment, you know, um, be, you know, create a home that really will be an estate that will, that will be, a like the, the engine of society, you know, that your children will change the world because of your influence. Um, the, the vision is so low, just, you know, like go to a bar and, try to mitigate all of the risks that you're taking by, by having no vision for life. And again, this, this goes back, back to the creational norms. It goes back to my religious arguments, which would be, of course, that we see all throughout society. You, we cannot deny it that 
um, the, the, the home, a healthy yes. home is powerful to create a citizenry and a next generation, unlike anything else. And I think we're seeing that now pretty clearly that um, society kind of falls apart, not kind of society falls apart when the home falls apart. Which I think is why this is such an attack. This is why this is such a hot button issue because there are so many, um, well, it's a strategic, it's a strategic, uh, it's a strategic, it's a strategic hill to fight on for Satan and evil. But even for the individual, it, it, this is such a topic that it, it, you know, sends them in one direction or another. Mm-hmm. Uh, the point you make about sort of the collapse of not just the nuclear family, but sort of the, the meaning and the importance and the value of that, I think is quite important. I can't remember if I said this to you before during our previous chat, but um, it seems like everybody I, I talk to now is talking about a loss of meaning, a loss of identity, that that's the true cause of, of so many of the other problems we're facing now. And I think in the home where all rules are, are broken. Everything falls apart. You know, there's maybe no nuclear family anymore, or, or there is, but they don't eat together, or they don't have a conversation with each other because they're all on, on their phones, or, or they don't have stability for a variety of reasons. And if you come out of that kind of home, and you don't find meaning or identity, uh, it's interesting, I was actually just watching a, a toddler parenting video. And, um, you know, Grain, grain of salt and all of that, take take it for what it's worth. But woman who I think was quite <laughs> quite lovely was saying, you know, there's some basic rules. You obey mom and dad. You don't hurt yourself. You don't hurt other people. And you figure out what your family stands for. She said, that's like the fourth most important thing that you tell your child in those early years. And so she said something like, we're walkers and we're good to people, which I think is very interesting because that idea that there's an identity to your family group is, I think, lost now for the most part. And so whatever it is, it's not it's not important that that's your mantra or that's your identity, but I think when I see this in young people, you know, I had students they're in that 17 to 21, 22 age group and they just don't you can see they're so untethered, unmoored from anything. They don't have meaning from their family. They don't maybe have meaning in a spiritual sense. They maybe are even in a kind of crisis in terms of how to get meaning from their social group because now it's all online, online social media appearance, all of that. And, and, and having genuine friendships is, I think, a lot trickier to navigate and understand than it used to be. So when it comes to, you know, young people and, and sexual relationships, if you don't have meaning in any other way as kind of a compass to guide whether or not that's a good idea or how frequently to have them or with whom or when, or, you know, any of those questions, you think, I don't know, that feels kind of good in not just in the, in the physical sense, but, you know, I feel great after because this is somebody who wanted me, who valued me, who built me up, who made me feel good about myself. That sounds meaningful. Maybe I'll do that again next week. Nothing better has come along in terms of a source of meaning or identity. So you can sort of understand how we've gotten to that place. And um, it's really interesting because young people tell me, I sort of get two conflicting stories. Um, Some young people in that uh, high teenage group tell me that, you know, teenagers are more promiscuous than ever. 
And others tell me that they've kind of developed a sort of apathy towards sexual relationships because they're so exhausted from developing a social media presence that they just almost have a loss of like the ability to feel something with a person who's in their physical proximity. So, I mean, layer upon layer of complexity, but again, I think we're down to this what is life really about? Where does you get where do you get your sense of meaning from? And then how do you use that as a compass to guide all of your other choices in life? I think the one thing that can't be undone is the consequences of um I want to say the consequence of sin, but then also the consequence of decision. Because when, when you're describing that young adult who chases after that one, that one night stand feeling, mm -hmm. or maybe the six month thing, I, I still have not yet met a young adult who, if you sit them down and say, okay, if I, I've had five partners and they all dissipated, I, I, there, I haven't yet found a person who said, I'm, I'm really happy about that. Yeah. Like I, I'm, I'm really excited about having my heart broken or, or having this physical problem or you know, there, there is an unshakable foundation that in our creation that mm -hmm. always wins. And, and when I say that, I mean like God has built wisdom into the universe. And so when we talk with these young adults, I can empathize with them, but I will still always call them back to, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Proverbs 1, 7. Like, if you really want to find out this meaning, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And that will allow you then to, when you make a mistake and, and you have that feeling, you know that you've made a mistake, you all, you have a way to be restored. You have the, you have a way forward. And, you know, that's the hope that I have in this conversation, that the more the culture is now, like you said, why are we talking about this now? Why are we searching for meaning? Mm -hmm. There is a great opportunity to bring meaning back to culture and society. Um, I'm going to publicly bring people back to the fear of the Lord. Like, you know, we need to have his foundations, his wisdom, his salvation, his forgiveness, all of these things because as we talk about all these different motives and consequences, I think you and I can sit down with people and just as good listeners go, okay, you know, un it, it's not working for you, you know, mm -hmm. to, to the young uh, abortionist. Um, I have yet to have a conversation with a young woman who is vehemently pro-choice mm -hmm. and at some point in the conversation doesn't show that really, really deep inconsistency or even remorse. Mm -hmm. It's very, it, it's, it's an impossible worldview to have and be consistent. And so um, I, I'm really glad we've meandered through a bunch of different topics. Wow. We've kind of gone from biology to uh, parenthood, to motives, to consequences. I think the meandering and, has actually been very profitable. I'm going to give you the last word. And then I know you have a time crunch today. I know I have a time crunch today. 
And I know our listeners are ready to listen to you for another hour, but they're ready for me to sign off. So (laughs) give us us your final thoughts. It occurs to me that I think through everything, we, I don't think I ever actually addressed or answered the question you asked, which is, you know, why, why does pro-choice work for the COVID mandates, but it doesn't for abortion? And that's a longer question. We might have to sort of uh, put, put a bookmark in the book and come back to that, but let's pin that. Yeah. Um, But on the topic of, you know, why a lot of our pathways and choices right now are unfulfilling, I think there are two things. I mean, when I was an academic, I, I read a lot in the area of moral psychology and there are two surefire ways in life to become unhappy. And we've known, we've known this for millennia. Um, one is to rest all of your value in the opinions others have in you. And, and Aristotle himself said, I mean, this is a this is an empty way to to find pleasure and happiness, because if, you, if you're seeking reputation or celebrity, that's just putting all of your eggs in the basket of an external good of people valuing you and you can't control that. So that's never going to make you happy. So that's one way to be surely become unhappy is to care too much about what other people think. And that's really hard in this era of social media likes and all of that, right? The second way, surely to be unhappy is to be a narcissist, to focus too much on yourself, right? And to, and I think a lot of the, you know, the self-help literature, the self-help cottage industry, while there are insights there that are valuable, has done us the great disservice in sort of turning the the mirror too much on ourselves and too much. I mean, it's good to have it's good to be introspective and reflective, but to think that the sole source of value in life is your own is yourself and your own self promotion. We know um, just from from psychological studies that the more people think about themselves, the less happy they are, right? So we have to find some kind of happy medium. We have to realize that, you know, the good life as as a good moral person, I think as a spiritually satisfied person, is to realize that no human is the ultimate source of meaning, right? And if we try to find it within ourselves, within this realm, it's just a self-defeating exercise. One, I think that we're living out every day right now. That's all I have to say today. (laughs) No, that's fantastic. And I, I really do encourage people to go read the first chapter of the book of Proverbs that that has a, a call to wisdom and a call to meaning and a call to the Lord. Um, whether or not, wow, you just opened another can in that last section, which we'll put uh, all our is cans fine. on the shelves for the next. We'll, we'll put all our cans on the shelves. <laughs> um, certainly, we are dealing with a culture that needs to um, draw attention away from immediate, utter, immediate pleasure in the way that our culture is defining it. And I, so mm-hmm. I appreciate those closing words. Well, everybody. Um, we've talked about some weighty stuff here, but I think, you know, even if you've got some pro-choice friends out there that would kind of typically just dismiss me or even might dismiss Julie for her you know, pro-freedom choices uh, for, you know, as many people have, um, this would be the type of conversation that I think is a good sample, a good example of... Um, trying to weigh through a very hard discussion. And uh, so 
share the video and let's try to help more people reflect on uh, the value of human life and, and why this big inconsist inconsistency in our culture is so problematic. So Julie, as always, thank you for coming on and being so articulate. Everybody, thank you for listening and Godspeed to you.